Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward thinking, out of the box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and lock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. Hey guys, what's up everyone? In this episode of the Ascend Podcast, we're joined by Jimmy Nelson. This is such an interesting and fascinating journey to say the least. However, each week we have very deep conversations with all different types of people, from the Iceman Wim Hof, inspiration and motivational speaker Prince Ear, UFC fighter Carlos Condit, to Stephen K. Hayes who spent 10 years being the bodyguard of the Dalai Lama. But in this episode of the Ascend Podcast, we're joined by Jimmy Nelson, he has travelled all over the world to some of the most remotest places on the earth to document some of the most fantastic indigenous cultures left on the planet today. He wanted to discover how the rest of the world is threatening to change their way of life forever. But most importantly, he wanted to create an ambitious photographic document that would stand the test of time. If you haven't seen Jimmy's work before the die, which gives a great preview of the incredible catalogue of photos, capturing the spirit of last remaining native people, still in touch with their ancient traditions, it's an absolute masterpiece born of our world, captured by a master, and I would recommend heading over to the show notes to descendbodymind.com and checking out Jimmy's TED Talk. The story and journey in this podcast illustrates an important principle in life, and it's 16 years old. Jimmy contacted malaria after a medication debacle was rendered permanently bald, and the identity shock led him down a path of self-discovery. And at 18, he grabbed a camera and set out to walk across the length of Tibet, capturing moments on six rolls of Kodak film. His photo collection was then published, and that propelled him on the path to be a photographer. It's a really interesting story, but what, if, what would have ever happened if Jimmy hadn't contacted malaria and been given the wrong medication? Would he have ever, ever achieved this level of mastery? Maybe or maybe not, but it illustrates a powerful lesson in my opinion. Within this podcast as well, there's some great lessons that I learned. Lesson one, nothing is inherently a blessing or a curse. There are only challenges and it's up to you to decide what you do with those challenges. Lesson two, be generous with your resources. You never know when someone who has helped you along the way or path will be able to return the favour. Lesson three, love, compassion and kindness should always trump religious or social dogma. And lesson four, comfort and technology do not always necessarily equate to happiness. Happiness is constantly found in meeting daily challenges and maintaining close contact with those who you love. This podcast is certainly come from a very different and cool angle, but the sheer beauty of message that we want to put across through Jimmy's work and journey, we really just want the whole message to transcend over to other people and transcend over to you guys as well and really make people really appreciate the true and real beauty of message that cannot be forgotten in the traditional record of capturing the spirit of the last remaining native people still in touch with their ancient traditions. So hopefully in this podcast we can really just do the whole concept in some justice. But before we jump with this podcast, also please don't forget to leave a review of the podcast and just let us know what you think. This podcast is an absolute gem of the episode, so without further ado, Jimmy Nelson. Welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure. It's nice to be with you. No problem. I just wanted to um, start off this by saying that obviously Chris and myself were on photographers and our knowledge of like photography is limited, but we feel regardless of people's knowledge and understanding of photography like us, 
it it shouldn't stop them from like appreciating the sheer beauty and message that we're going to put across through your work and your, and your journey as yeah, well. I mean, it's a good way to begin because, to be honest, the photography is a is visually a strong part of it, but sort of uh, the Dutch would say in look uh, sort of in, in in the core of it, it doesn't have that much to do with it. It's all about a sort of a journey. A personal journey, a physical journey, uh, and also sort of a metaphorical journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're, 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 not, just we're want... not going to talk about lenses and apertures. Don't worry. Yeah, because we really just want to share like the the whole message to transcend over to people and really make people like just appreciate the, like the real beauty and message that like that cannot be forgotten and like this traditional record of capturing the spirit of the last remaining native people like still in touch with their like ancient traditions. So hopefully, just by doing this podcast, we can hopefully do the whole. Air the whole concept justice. Sure, I'm, I'm sure we will, and I'm, I'm open to any form of questioning. Everything's fine. Yeah. So, Jimmy, I think a good way to start this episode would be to begin with the start of your journey and the story that illustrates an important principle in your life and why you grabbed a camera and set out to walk across the length of Tibet. Uh, I didn't set out to walk across the length of Tibet uh, self-consciously. It was I was essentially running away uh, I was running away from the past and running into the future, and it had to be done in a radical way. Uh, I grew up in two ex- extreme environments. One was in the third world with my parents. Uh, my father was a geologist working for Shell, and he would sort of live in the bush and every year get transported to a different third world destination. And he would sort of collect rocks and stones with uh, essentially with native or traditional peoples and then decide whether an oil uh, company should come in and drill a hole. And at the age of seven, they decided all these sort of remote locations were not necessarily suitable for a seven year old child. I needed an education. So they sent me to a Jesuit Catholic boarding school in Lancashire. And that's where I spent the next 10 years of my life, till the age of 17. Uh, twice a year, I would visit my parents on the location that they were working and living in. And that was every year another third world. So extreme contrast. And I remember very early on, if you can imagine the, the boarding school, very traditional, very English, uh, probably doesn't exist in the same way today as it did then. Uh, 1,000 boys, 400 priests tucked away on a sort of a, a, a hill. Very isolated, uh, very secretive. And then I would be traveling back and forth to wild parts of the world where there would be a war or a, a coup d'etat or a, uh, whatever. And I remember at the very beginning going to this boarding school and turning up one day with pictures of my friends. And I was eight years old, seven, eight years old. And all my mates at that particular time were black because I lived in West Africa. And I immediately remember being judged for having black friends and I didn't understand why I was being judged and I didn't understand why I was being ostracized because these kids were just my mates and I had no objectivity at that age. So from a very, very, very early on, I've been aware of how we look at each other as human beings and how we judge each other for our uh, skin color, our wealth, uh, in the case of the UK, our accents. So it's been a sort of an ongoing uh, preoccupation you could even say uh, chip on my shoulder if you want to analyze it further yeah and Jimmy yeah oh sorry no go ahead so you have those two extreme backgrounds one is 
you know, all male, very religious, very isolated, a uh, bit strange. Another one is sort of living in the bush. And then you get to the age of six. Next to that, another layer, I'm very dyslectic. Um, I essentially can't add up one and one still today at the age of 48. Um, and I felt I was very creative, uh, very uh, artistic. In some ways, although I'm very male and heterosexual, effeminate. So all these aspects made me feel that I was different, you, as a lot of kids feel. And the day I woke up one morning and I looked in the mirror, my hair had fallen out. That was because I'd been given the wrong antibiotics. Uh, was the day, it was like I said, a catalyst. It was a day I could act differently, if that makes any sense. If you yeah. can imagine a very traditional, so essentially like a boarding school, like Harry Potter with no magic and a couple of gay priests, and then all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you look at yourself in the mirror and you meet somebody else. And as I often joke nowadays, I'm 48 and half of Amsterdam doesn't have any hair at my age. Yeah. Fine when you're middle-aged, but not when you're a teenager. Especially not when you're in a teenager in an environment where people judge each other big time. And the, getting over the first shock of appearance, changing, well, everything will be fine. I'm still Jimmy. And then sort of going out into the outside world and then screaming at the top of your voice, I'm still Jimmy, but being treated as somebody else. It's very, very, very disconcerting. You say, well, I may look like somebody else, but I'm still the same person that was here yesterday. And then many people were wagging a very big judgmental finger saying, no, you've become somebody else and we're going to treat you differently. So you have these extreme contrasts in early childhood. Then in mid-teenage years, you yourself are ostracized. You already were feeling a little bit different because of your um, your your um, capabilities or incapabilities, depending on how people see them. And all of a sudden, you become visually different. Um, and then, so I decided to run away. You try and explain it, you try and, and then nobody listens to you. Uh, I, I remember being expelled from this boarding school. It's a very old term. You have to leave now because you shaved your head, you've become skinhead. And I was screaming at the top of my head, no, my hair's fallen out, and they went bollocks. <laughs> and uh, they said, it's nothing to do with that. You were always difficult and odd, and now you've proven it. You, now you can piss off. And I remember going to live with my grandmother, and then two weeks later coming back to the boarding school and uh, going up to the headmaster and taking off my clothes in his office and standing there stark, bollock, naked, saying, uh, I know I really have no hair. And I remember this priest sort of looking at me, and, uh, and the only thing he said, he didn't ask me how I felt or we were right or we were wrong. He just said... Um, well, you better hurry along. You have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, Jimmy. Jimmy, was it um, was it like true that you contracted malaria as well? Yeah, no, I had I had cerebral malaria, uh -huh. malaria the red, and um, so I was ill. I was I went back to the boarding school. I think it was a combination. The hair loss is is called alopecia totalis. Mm -hmm. um, it happens to quite a few people. It's the same reason your hair falls out. So if you're receiving chemotherapy when you're having cancer treatments, and um, a combination of being given the wrong antibiotics, because I came back to this boarding school, I was ill, and they said, well, you've got some sort of bad flu, and you know, take this pot of pills, and being stressed. And alopecia totalis happens a lot when you're stressed, um, when a parent dies, uh, you get divorced, you fall out of a tree, you have a car crash, or whatever. And in this particular case, a teenager being stressed in actually probably wanting to stay at home, but not having that opportunity, being sort of thrown into the, the sea of uh, sharks, which the boarding school felt like, and then feeling vulnerable. So a combination of that and taking the wrong medicine, and then it sort of attacked the nervous system, and then it all fell out. Yeah. Yeah. And my way of dealing with it was running, running away, because my parents didn't listen. They couldn't listen. 
perhaps I wouldn't let them listen. I was angry. And uh, so at the age of 17, I bought a one-way ticket to Tibet. And I ended up entering Tibet from the far northwest, from Kashgar, and started walking and essentially spent a year, a little over a year, traveling the length of Tibet. Uh, it wasn't for anthropological reasons, it wasn't for ph photographic reasons, it wasn't to find myself within Buddhism, it was just to sort of get lost, basically. Mm -hmm. so, something that interested me there is, like, when you, when you said you contact malaria, it makes me wonder, like, what would have happened if you hadn't contacted it? And you've been, yeah, and no, it's, it's a very good question, and it's a question I'm often asked and I ask myself. I probably would have become quite an unhappy person, and what what is happened and that's essentially a lot of what I do and what this story is about it's finding your true identity yeah. um, and that's that's what we all try and should do as human beings and some of us go further than others and that that's true happiness it's finding your uh, dealing with your weaknesses finding your skills and finding your place in life and the people around you that you love and uh, are loved by and where and that comes by pushing yourself into corners, by taking risks, by and by being, I was somewhat different and capable, incapable as a kid. I had to disappear or evolve into a creative world, but it wasn't encouraged. So I would have probably been pushed into some sort of banking system or, I don't know, uh, uh, yeah. some traditional uh, upper middle class background where I was not capable I think it I, makes you wonder as well if you if you would have achieved this level of mastery really. No, no, I probably I would have probably become very unhappy uh, because I wasn't <laughs> capable. So it's a very um, significant happening, uh, and I wouldn't be who I was today, and I wouldn't be doing what I was doing now if it hadn't have happened. No, I'm sure it sure it wouldn't. No. Yeah, Jimmy, I think as well is nothing is like inherently a blessing or a curse. I think there's only challenges, and I think it's up to you to decide what you yeah, do. No, with it, we all experience everything, and it's going to be positive and negative, and we all carry it with us. But if you use it as an excuse for things that don't work, yeah. then, you know, you know, shit happens to all of us, and amazing things happen to all of us. you just got to learn from it. And some of us, excuse my friends, look for the shit because we like to test ourselves. We like to push ourselves. We like to push those boundaries because we want to see how far we can go mentally, physically. Uh, you, you understand? Yeah, yeah by being pushed as a kid to into a corner by being spat out the other side by going off and disappearing, seeing yeah. what you can achieve at such a very young, early and naive age. But what I was fascinated about was how um, how close you can get to people in periods of stress because I felt stress. I remember a long time ago, my grandmother telling me one of the happiest times of her life was in the Blitz living in London. She said because that was the only time she felt part of a community because everybody was protecting each other because everybody yeah. felt within 24 hours they could be dead. And she said that was so pure. Um, the experiences I went off in my early 20s to do were because I wanted to find that pure connection. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'd been so removed from how we look and treat each other. I wanted to go back to the very, very, very basics. And the basics were we could be dead tomorrow. And when you share an environment with, when you feel you could die tomorrow, you have a very, very uh, profound experience. And in interestingly, a, lot of, a number of other young people, some of whom I know, some of whom I don't, and many of whom are dead, go yeah. off and do that and have done that. Um, and when I met my wife when I was 24, 
she is Dutch, very direct, very honest. And she basically said, you know, uh, if you carry on doing this, you will die. And she was right, because you're not doing it for the right reasons. You're hiding and you've got to come back into the real world mm-hmm. and deal with your fears or your insecurities. And uh, so that was also quite a big transition period at the age of about 24 Jimmy, what was your um, what was your reason for like creating your masterpiece of capturing the spirit of the last remaining native peoples? Um, very much to do with what happened to me as a kid. Um, then I had all these experiences in my early twenties. I was making a living or some sort of uh, basic living as a photographer, and then I met my wife, who I'm still with today. We have three teenage children. And she basically said, you know, it's all fine and well. I'd quite like to sort of, you know, move on with you and have a family, but, you know, not as you live and as you are now. The only thing I could do, because I had no education after the age of 17, was make pictures. So I started doing commercial photography um, to pay the gas and the electricity. Um, But always my hobby was what I'm doing today. And I always did it on the side. So if I was sent somewhere for a commercial assignment, and it was yeah. on a location, and an interesting location, I would stay there because my true passion was these environments, these landscapes, these peoples, doing a lot of research, doing a lot of reading. So my hobby became what I do today. And, but it was very much a hobby. You know, you know, some of us like to rebuild motorbikes, some of us like to dance all night, some of us like to do drugs. My hobby was indigenous cultures and their beauty. And basically my wife and all her aunts would turn around and said, well, you know, we're going to have to move on. You're going to have to change. And there's only one thing you know about and you care about is uh, indigenous cultures and tribes. Mm. You're going to have to. And and I said, you know, I was a little bit confused. He said, well, commercial photography is essentially dead. But I think what you have to tell and what you have to show, the rest of the world would like to see. And mm-hmm. so on that day, six years ago, I sort of closed the door to commercial photography and decided to indulge in my lifelong passion, which is what I'm doing today. It's like an area of your masterpiece that really fascinates me is the, the Kazakhs of Mongolia. Mm-hmm. Like the famous Kazakh eagle hunters, mm-hmm. they provide some of the most iconic images like ever captured. Yeah. I would love for you to tell us, tell us about them and share a story about them. Well, there's, the, the, first of all, the, the Kazakh, you're right to choose them. They are extraordinarily beautiful people. They're extraordinarily yeah. proud people. They're handsome people. They're, and as with all of these indigenous cultures or tribes, they all have phenomenal traditions and rituals. And this is very much what it's about. And other than looking like sort of Hollywood stars and living in this extraordinarily beautiful landscapes, They have traditions, and one of the rituals is um, when a child becomes a man, so it's going back again to childhood and evolving into manhood, you're encouraged, or you have to, scale mountains and cliffs and find a baby eagle. Uh, The nests are very high, they're very isolated, they're very remote, they're very dangerous. You have to scale these cliffs as a teenager without any form of security, no ropes, no carabiners, and find yourself a baby eagle. If you succeed, and sometimes you don't, you come down, you spend the rest of your adult life training and living and hunting with that eagle. Some of which you see in the pictures which I've made. That eagle can become uh, 30 kilos. It has a five meter wingspan. And it's this amazing symbiosis between man, nature and animal where they all live and become entwined. And these men live with their eagles. The eagles often outlive the lifespan of the men themselves, and they hunt with them. 
they hunt with them on horseback for rabbits and foxes, especially in the winter months when there's snow on the ground. And so you can imagine, you know, with what I do and my interest and my fascination and my sort of visual aesthetic, you know, these guys are out of this world. First time I went there, I traveled in February and I'd first been to the Satan in north central Mongolia. And then I drove across northern Mongolia with a couple of locals. It took about a month to sort of snowdrifts and hurricanes. And we actually arrived there. And I wasn't well enough equipped to deal with photographing them, not in a personal way, but it was too cold and remote and uh, isolated. And I'm using this old technical camera. So I remember spending sort of two weeks sort of faffing around. And one particular thing happened. I... Half the pictures I make are these portraits, and they're made during the day. They're made inside, indoors, in caves and houses, when yeah, you're using yeah. reflected light. But the landscape pictures of them standing on top of the mountains, or like the Huli in Papua New Guinea standing under waterfalls, are made very early in the morning or very late in the evening. It's all indirect sunlight. It's very soft. It's called the magic hour. But to get three Kazakhs on top of a mountain in magic hour means you've got to walk up from their village at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So first you've got to uh, uh, persuade them, explain to them, you don't speak their language. Guys, you know, I think you're phenomenal. Uh, would you mind getting up tomorrow morning at two o'clock and spending three hours walking on top of a mountain with me in a howling gale and minus 20 degrees centigrade? Yeah. And then you're going to have to stand there for 20 minutes whilst I faff around with my old plate camera making a picture of you, which you're never going to see. Well, you may see in the future, but you're not going to see now because it's on film. Yeah. So you first go through that whole ritual dance of communication. And the first time I went, and then you eventually get them into that stage. You walk up on top of the mountain. The vista is there. You've walked up there on your own before. You can see the landscape, the fantastic vista, the snowy mountains, the rivers. And then the first two mornings, it didn't work because there was no sunrise. So if you sort of look at it from my perspective and you're dealing with this sort of semi-autistic, sort of artistic view, it just wasn't beautiful enough. Uh, It was very flat. So you persuade them. We're going to go back down. We're going to come again in the morning. So on the third morning, they didn't want to go. And I said, you know, I was on the verge of actually crying and begging them, you know, guys, you have to come up with me because I have to make this one picture. So sort of essentially dragging them uh, in some ways unfairly on top of this mountain. Then we're standing there. The sun starts to rise. It's beautiful. It's extraordinary. I lose it a bit. Uh, I'm somewhat stressed and panicking and cold. And I'm sort of fiddling around with this camera. And then I realized I've got the wrong lens on it. And the lens are attached to a metal plate, a homemade metal plate. So I took, took my gloves off, started trying to undo the lens. And my fingers stuck to the lens, to the lens plate, because it's too cold. And I'm sort of faffing around thinking it's fine. Then I realized I can't take my fingers off. Uh, so finally, you're ready. You've got your tripod. You've got your camera. Everybody's ready. The horses are in place. The wind's blowing in the right direction. It's cold. And the guys are waving at me. Come on, get on with it, whatever you're trying to do. And I can't because I'm stuck. Yeah. <laughs> and I decided, well, I better. I took my fingers off the camera and I left all the skin behind on the lens, on the metal plate. They started to bleed. Uh, it felt like somebody was hitting them with a hammer. And then I realized I was, excuse my French, fucked because I couldn't take the plate out of my bag anymore because my fingers were useless. So I started to cry. Uh, I had a sort of a little bit of a, a breakdown. I'm not ashamed to admit it. I was cold. Um, you're exhausted. and you can't physically function anymore. So you see this sort of in this landscape, this visca opening up in front of you like an early morning flower. You can't do anything about it. And you think, why do you go to such extremes? So I remember sitting there on the floor crying and uh, extremely upset with myself. 
And then they gestured, said, well, look behind you. They pointed behind me. And two of the ladies had followed us up from the village, two of the Kazakh ladies, curious to what we were doing on top of the mountain early in the morning every day. And they gestured me to go over to them. So I sort of walked over to them, sort of sobbing away like a little child. And one of them opened a jacket, grabbed my fingers and put them on her chest, her armpits, her breast, wherever. And the other one came behind me and they bear hugged me to get me warm. And it was only until an hour later that I realized what happened. And this is a very important story in this whole theme is a connection was made whereby they are Muslims. Mm. Now, they're not... Uh, the IAS, they were never going to cut my head off. Uh, I've spent a lot of time living and visiting Islamic parts of the world and have enormous respect in actual fact for it. This is a very moderate form of Islam, but it's very uh, significant. You don't look at women, let alone go up and put your hands on their chest to be encouraged by men. Yeah, it's forbidden, isn't it? And so it's it's far beyond forbidden. It's just not part of the culture, especially by Uh a stranger. And what had happened in this particular case is having spent three weeks living with them in such an intimate way, having spent three weeks showing them my uh, uh, eccentricity, um, they saw who I really was. They went beyond my culture. They went beyond my appearance, beyond my fact that I have no hair, beyond the fact that I came from another country and actually Mm -hmm. saw that I was, without being in any way self-righteous, a, a decent person who really was there to put them on a pedestal, who really was there to idolize them, who really was there to make these iconic pictures. Yeah. And what they had to do as one human being to another was help me. Mm-hmm. It's really, Jim, it's really um, fascinating to me that it's not permitted in the Kazakh Muslim culture for like a woman to have that kind of contact with another non-Muslim yeah, man. It's not only not another man, it's just any man in general. Yeah, any man, yeah. And, but and, I think as well in them, I was going to say, Jimmy, but I think as well in them harsh conditions, something else, like something more deeper comes into play, like more than their religious values. Maybe call it something tribal, but something else comes into play. It's beautiful. Well, what came into play was being a, being a human being, and yeah, having yeah. Uh, empathy for one another, and one mm-hmm. human being having serious problems. I mean, I was having serious, serious problems. But the fact that yeah. they'd seen me prior to that, they'd really seen who I was. And that's this whole journey since childhood is desperate to be, and as we all are, I'm sure, as human beings, see who I am, see who I am. Don't yeah. judge me. Don't judge me for what you think I am or what you... And if very, very, very pure human contact was made, I was putting them on a pedestal. I failed in that process. I truly failed, and they had to help me. Mm-hmm. And, I think and I'm, sure, I'm sure that's what it's about when you dig deeper, deeper under the surface. Yeah, I was going to say, I think out of all that there, there's like a really great lesson. And that's like love, compassion and kindness should always like trump religious and, or social dogma. And it has to. And, and, I'm, and, you, and the only way to truly experience that is perhaps the world has become so busy and so, yeah. again, excuse my language, you know, so fucked up. We're so far removed yeah. from what we really are. We're so far removed from what we really feel and we think, you know. Living in the in the modern world, you know, there's so many of us, you know, by the year 2050, the United Nations says that 95% of the world will live in an urbanized zone. That means 95% of us will live on concrete. Uh, that is not a good thing for human beings. Yeah. Um, it's not, you can't just turn around and say, we've all got to run, take our clothes off and put some skin on and run back into nature and go and hug trees. That will never happen. But what we do have to realize is that we have to keep our eyes open. We have to keep making contact. We have to keep respecting, looking, learning, visiting and seeing, discussing with some of the people that I visited to make, see how pure we are as human beings and see how valuable that is for us.
And this one story with the Cossacks, you know, not only are they extraordinary people to look at, but this one human connection is a very profound example in what we should keep striving to do. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, one question I was curious about was like how you got all these tribes to post all these pictures, because in my Western mind, I assumed like there was some sort of kind of barter, like if you got prints of pictures or you give them some kind of food. Yeah, it's a very good question. If you, if you yeah. can imagine, you go off into, let's take an, in an extreme way, to Papua New Guinea. Mm -hmm. uh, you're miles and miles and miles away from any. These people don't have money. Yeah. Uh, these people don't want to see you. Uh, you're a threat. You're from, an, as they described, from another valley. Uh, they have no idea where you're from. Many of them don't even know what a camera is. And in some extreme cases, they've never seen somebody who was white. You're, to begin with, you're a threat. Yeah? Um, any form of barter, you know, give them the picture. Well, first of all, they don't know what a picture is. Uh, I can't give them the picture because the film was, on, uh, was on, a, on film, not digitally. Immediately, that is. Uh, money, well, they don't have money. Uh, admittedly, when I would arrive... Uh, with a guide, we would bring food. Very quickly, if we could try, we would buy an animal or bring an animal from somewhere. So you'd have a ritual, you'd have a dinner, you'd have a, a gift of some kind to show your respect. And then the true way of making the picture was about spending minutes, hours, days, and sometimes weeks on your knees and making yourself very small, very humble, very vulnerable, and then slowly rebuilding up a relationship where you start looking up at them, you start touching them and saying, guys, you know, you look amazing. You are strong. You are powerful. And you essentially very physically start almost worshipping them. If you arrive in some extreme cases, perhaps in Papua New Guinea, these guys, you know, they, they, in many ways they want to hurt you. If you give in within one second, you put yourself on the floor and say, guys, you know, you could eat me tomorrow for breakfast. That's exaggerating. Yeah. The game is over. So that, that stride, the Dutch say, I don't know how he says in English, that, that, that battle of authority and power mm. is over from the very beginning. You've given in. They've won. So the mm. thrill of, and then after that, there's a curiosity. How does this person dare sit on the floor and make themselves so vulnerable when we could do absolutely anything to them? And then that's when the human curiosity starts to arise. And then numbers, you know, most of them sort of walk away and there's always one or two left over who are still staring at you, still touching you. And then eventually you start a relationship. You start a relationship by touch. You start talking in your own language, which they don't understand. But if you're physically very, you make a lot of contact. You touch their muscles in their arms and go, oh, yeah. wow, and you know, you're strong. And you go, wow, and you're sitting there sweating and you look afraid and you make sure you stay small. And then eventually you touch their chin and lift their chin up into the sun and say, oh, wow, you look amazing, you look beautiful. And then you sort of guide them in with your hand and say, come, 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 come and look. And you've got this box. And in that yeah. box, there's this old technical plate camera and you slowly start building it and putting it together. And I always take another one with me and give it to them. And they look at it and don't know what it is and throw it over their shoulder. And it doesn't matter because it's not worth anything anyway. And then you start looking through the camera and you start running backwards and forwards from the camera and touching them and asking them to sit up straight and breathe in. And slowly this sort of hero worship emerges whereby these people feel special. This guy, no matter how strange he is or where he's from, he really is putting us on a pedestal. And that whole dance carries on for hours and hours and hours. And then it's very exciting because when you start making the portraits, you're making them in shadows. They're never in direct light. And then you need more people to help you. And I always take reflectors with me and the reflectors to create a studio. So in the end, I run off into the village and find other people to come and help. And before you know it, you're photographing the chief who you spent three hours telling him how amazing and strong and handsome he is. 
You've got eight other villagers around you holding these reflectors, catching the light and bouncing it and painting his face and making him beautiful. And then the whole, it becomes a whole dance within the village. And then you make the picture and you run up and give him a hug and it's the first time you truly touch each other and you show him how happy and ecstatic you are. And then before you know it, somebody else comes and starts banging their chest and touching his muscles and his groin saying, well, actually, I'm more important. I'm stronger and bigger than him and I want to sit in his place. And this can go on for days and days and days where you photograph the whole village because everybody wants you to see them. Everybody wants you to sit on your knees before them and worship them. And then what's very funny is... Um, you know, having a name like Jimmy is very handy when you travel because the whole world can say Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. And the chief comes up the next morning and goes, Jimmy, 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 Jimmy. And then he points outside and a whole another village has turned up because they've all heard about this strange person from another valley who's come to worship you. And they're all going to sit on the chair and sort of point to the box with the camera and say, you know, do the same to me. So it's about to sort of uh, see me, see me, see me, see me. And that's if you make the time and if you're sincere and if you truly believe in what you're doing and why you're doing it, you will exude that in your personality. And no matter how eccentric or odd uh, it is, and especially when you can't speak the language, and you find a form of communication. To me, there's something I'd like to ask you, um, which was another wonderful story, which is uh, the Chujuki people of Siberia. Yeah. Like you mentioned like before that they've got one of the most rugged existences in the world. Yeah. And like icy cold weather relentlessly bears down on them. Yeah. And their resources are scarce at best. Yeah. And at one point, the Russian government offered them housing in a nearby town. Yeah. Could you tell us a little about that place? Um, to be brief, you've got the Chukchi and Chukotka. It's one of the remotest uh, uh, Inuit tribes on the planet. There's only about technically 80 of them living, still left on the tundra. They're split into two groups. They're called brigades. Uh, they live in an area the size of France. And they're nomads. They live with thousands of reindeer. And they're herders. Uh, the average winter temperature is minus 40. Uh, the snow level never leaves the ground. Summer temperatures are minus 10. It's brutal, it's remote, and it's extreme. Uh, when we eventually found them, it took a month to get there, and we weren't sure whether we would find them. First of all, a very profound event happened. They said, you can't take pictures. Uh, a little bit sort of shocking. And they said, well, you know, we know what pictures are in film. Is we've, you know, we've met people before, but there's no time the, our existence here is so harsh, we cannot give you that time to sit still for a picture because we have so much to do every day to survive. But they said, you're welcome to stay, you're welcome to watch, you're welcome to observe. So by default, I was pushed into a position, a fantastic position for the first time, and actually participating in these people's lives, not just waiting to make that picture. And then observing many phenomenal sort of, you know, intimate, very tribal aspects of how they lived. And in a couple of the stories I talk about are, you know, every morning you're sitting in a tent and watching the children eating breakfast. And that can go on for a period of an hour. And, you know, I got very confused. I said, you know, why are they chewing for so long? And then, you know, the old people would smile. We had a good translator on this journey and said, well, you know, they're preparing dinner for us because we don't have teeth. And then you would watch the kids take out the old people into the snow and clean them and take them to the toilet because they were infirm. And very, very beautiful human ballet about how every single individual within this tiny, tight community living at the edge of the world had a very important role to perform. Mm -hmm. And then observing all of this, and at the end, you know, they said, you know, you could take a couple of pictures, and we made a couple of pictures in about 48 hours. And then at the very end, they said, you know, we asked them, why are you here? Because they were quite well educated. And they said, you know, in actual fact, we've chosen to live here, which I was very confused about. And then they talked about the city, uh, you know, two weeks uh, travel away over the hills. And they said, in actual fact, three years ago, we were living there. 
and then I became even more confused and they explained. They said, well, a year prior to that, we were living here and then the authorities came to us and they said, well, you know, time's moved on, guys. We don't need an, yeah. an indigenous culture living in the tundra herding reindeer. But we were proud of you. We think you're amazing as the Tutsi. We're going to sponsor you. We're going to fund you. We're going to accommodate you in the nearest city. And the Tutsi, you know, not knowing necessarily what it was, went fine, you know. If that's the way the world's become, we'll follow. So they followed like lemmings and ended up moving into these apartment blocks and sort of full-time heating and alcohol and tellies and you name it, they had it. A couple of skadoos were thrown in. And uh, their whole culture disintegrated. Now, they remained warm and sort of on tap alcohol and telly. But um, one day, six months later, uh, one of the bureaucrats came in and the chief told me they used a new word. They said, you know, you look very unhappy. We thought you'd be happy with what we've given you. And the, and the chief yeah. of the Tutsi said, well, what on earth does happy mean? You know, what's, we don't know what that word means or happy or unhappy. And then the bureaucrat explained it. And then the Tutsi turned around and said, well, we don't have that word in our vocabulary, but we're going to add it because we are now unhappy. You're right. We don't like our existence here. We have no purpose. We have no function. We don't see our elders. We don't see our kids. Yeah. We don't do anything any day. And in actual fact, living in that tent on the ice in minus 40 degrees centigrade, no matter how harsh it was, was a preference to living in this apartment block, doing nothing all day, sitting behind the telly, drinking alcohol. Because here we have no purpose. And here, to all intents and purposes, we've become this new word in our vocabulary, unhappy. So they literally abandoned it and went back to herding the deer. Mm-hmm. We met them where we did, as isolated as they were, and their existence is harsh. Uh, they are living at the very, very edge. But they said, you know, in many ways, we're happy here. And yeah. because this is what we know, this is what we feel, this is what we, gives us purpose. And even though our existence feels like it's only going to last 24 more hours, that 24 more hours is more profound, more in contact with ourselves, with our loved ones, within nature, than any of those months spent sitting on that couch behind the telly. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't understand the significance of it. And we traveled back in the tank. And then I, for me, and I talk about more than anything, you and I, we live in Northern Europe. Uh, I run around in yeah. jeans and I have a, uh, don't have a car in actual fact, but I have a bicycle and a house. And this is my choice of existence. I'm not telling yeah. you and I'm not going to be a hypocrite either and run off now into the tundra wearing furs, going to you know, start hugging trees and refine myself in nature. But what they did teach me was about choice. And yeah. often we're here, I'm moaning like most of them, oh, I can't do this, I don't have this, I don't have because I'm yeah. not truly in touch with what I am and who I feel and what I'm capable of. When you are so far removed and when you are as human beings were designed in many ways, if you actually go back in time, you know what you feel, you know what you think, and ultimately you know what you want, and then you can make the choices thereof. Are you following me? Yeah, we definitely. are so far removed from that, covered in our concrete and in our um, uh, this sort of uh, you know, urbanized existence, we don't know what's right or wrong anymore. We don't know yeah, what we definitely. feel. Uh, and there's a very good, amazing, if any of your listeners are interested, in, uh, Jared Diamond, and a phenomenal American uh, anthropologist. And he says it's almost as if the bodies which we lived in weren't designed for the existence that we now live. Yeah, um, I like that. And that's how uncomfortable we've become. And we're now sort of running around, you know, you know, uh, you know, trying to, some of us trying to eat healthily and you know, jumping on a bicycle and, you know, with a yoga mat yeah. under our arm. All <laughs> as a compromise to accommodate the fact that we don't feel right anymore. We do not feel right. We feel physically 
dysfunctional. And next to that, you know, if you go back to the story with the chukshi, that leads to un- potential unhappiness. It's a mm-hmm. big word, and I don't want to sound too evangelical. And if you could take the story back even further to the very beginning of how we started talking, what's this all about? It's all yeah. about me in my eccentricity, in my inabilities, and many, many incapabilities, in my visual impairments, whatever they are or not, finding mm-hmm. happiness. The mm-hmm. fuck my- Jimmy, I was just going to say I loved how they, how they turned the back on all the materialistic stuff. And I, yeah, but for so them it wasn't materialism. They, for them it was just in the way of what they wanted to feel. Yeah, I, I just liked how like, they went back to live as their people always have. And I think... Yeah, but I think and that, that's often, you know, often we, you know, we, on the rare occasion we manage to achieve that. Uh, it can make us extremely happy and we're so far removed from, you know, this whole... And it's very complicated, very, very complicated. You know, sort of consumerism is how the world evolves. Jimmy, mm-hmm. I think as well, I think as well, like comfort and technology do like, they're not always like necessarily equate to happiness. Happiness is more constantly found in meeting daily challenges and maintaining like close contact with people yeah. who you love. Well, one very simple, you know, you're right. And mm-hmm. now you walk into a cafe in the States and everybody's sitting on their telephones. I'm often on my telephone in the evening in a bar. And the person who was with me was explaining they were all dating with each other. Now, they weren't just on Tinder or one of these other apps. They were on apps whereby you were making contact with people in the room. And not only were you finding people you were mutually attracted with, you were explaining to them how much time you had for the potential acquaintance you're about to have, when you wanted the sex and how you wanted it. So you got rid of all forms of traditional human uh, learning and contact to get to that one physical activity. Now, amazing. Technology is phenomenal. It's getting you to that moment of copulation within seconds, if you want it. But mm. it's providing an enormous amount of unhappiness because that's not what it's about. It's not what it's about. It's mm. about the foreplay. It's about the foreplay of life of making human conduct. True love and true connection is the time you spend, the, the investment in yourself and the investment in the personality of the people with you. That's one extreme example of how overdeveloped we've become. In that restaurant or in that cafe where it was, you have conversations. They're all extremely unhappy. They're all desperately looking for partners. And they're all in their mid-late 30s and all wanting a family. But it's physically impossible anymore because they're relying on technology to make that contact. Mm -hmm. As opposed to feeling what they want. As opposed to seeing somebody they're attracted to, experimenting, failing, hurting, and learning what kind of human being I'd be best suited to being with and what not. And that's with so, so many aspects. We're so overdeveloped. We're so overapt. In some ways, it's fantastic. In other ways, it's an absolute disaster. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, I know one of your reasons for, like, for, for your amazing journey was to discover how the rest of the world is like threatening to change their way of life forever. Yeah. But I thought about this. Maybe one of the reasons in correspondence to how the rest of the world is threatening to change their future maybe by you cataloging, putting their amazing deep message across to people that's all part of changing our way of life? Yes, it's flattering that you say that. But you, one has to be careful. Not all with what our life is wrong. And I feel it's very much uh, what I'm trying to do in my own little way is trying to readdress a balance, if that makes sense. Yeah. It, how we live, you know, we have phenomenal aspects in, in how I live. You know, my children are safe in this city where I live. They jump on their bike. They have amazing education. They have free medical service. So there are a many, many very good aspects. But it's mm-hmm. trying to sort of re... It's a bit like yin and yang. It's trying to find that balance. In many of these tribal cultures I visited, there were things that which were far from perfect. 
But it's looking at the good aspects and combining those good aspects with the good aspects of how we are and trying to readdress that balance. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not saying one is better than the other. There is no ultimate holiday destination. There is no ultimate relationship. There is no ultimate religion. There are little pieces of destinations, religions, and people that should all be combined to find that, that true balance. The balance is that I often describe it. You have what the person who inspired me to do what I do is this photographer, Edward Sheriff Curtis, who photographed the Native American Indians last century and he was trying to say the same he was trying to make these iconic pictures of these fantastic tribes in uh, native indian america whilst america was being colonized and developed and the contemporary culture said what a load of bullshit these people are covered in skins dancing around fires with feathers in their hair Uh, Mm. they're a waste of time his pictures were destroyed most of them he died a pauper and in shame and then in the 1970s some of those pictures re-emerged and contemporary american culture went oh shit Look at what we've lost and look at what we could have learned and look at who we've become. And exaggerating, you know, there you are standing in a mirror being, you know, far overweight with a gun in your hand. Uh, They're so culturally removed from human respect because they lost their indigenous traditions. That makes me ask the question now, Jimmy, is like, do you fear for the future man? Like when all traditions... I mean, it's a bit like yes and no. Uh, are you afraid? The lady I was talking with this morning, you know, aren't you afraid if you have something goes wrong? Well, you can't be afraid. You have to mm-hmm. keep following your instincts. On one hand, I think human beings are phenomenal. Uh, there's not one day that goes by that I don't learn something. But we have to keep talking. Uh, we have to. That's one aspect of what is phenomenal about our world, what the Internet has become. It's a form of communication. It's how we're communicating this evening. It's how I can share what I'm doing 20 years ago. There's no way I could have in such a short period of time managed to communicate what I had photographed and what I would like to talk about. If you look at it now, the, 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 you understand. So that's one very good aspect, but it's, it's what you're communicating is important. Mm. That's why I think it's, it's going to be so important that if traditions do go, that when the situation happens, how important your message will be. Yeah, but they, and there has been some controversy with the projects I'm doing before they passed away. Well, it's, it was a controversial title. Nobody's dying, but something will die. Uh, and knowledge will die. And I think for a long time, for the last 20 years, we've all been running around worrying about the global warming. So we should be. And it's, uh, but nobody, or very few people actually thought about whether well, the, the people who truly understand nature and who truly live in harmony in nature are these cultures. They understand the significance of it. They understand the power of it. They understand the benefits of it. Until we look at them, until we converse with them, until we talk with them, until we respect them, which is what I'm trying to do within my photography, we won't be able to have their knowledge. And if we let them disappear, they won't disappear as individuals. They'll just move off into the city wearing a dirty T-shirt. But if we let them lose their knowledge, we may lose that overall knowledge of how we can protect and look after the planet. Jimmy, something else I want to ask you is I was wondering about what was like, was there any indication or like precognition telling you that someone's culture is about to change so dramatically so that like it endangers their total way of life? So you had to go and record it at some point or was it a good feeling? Um, Generally speaking, most of the places I've been to in the last few years I've been to before and I'd also been to as a child. Uh, The extreme changes in such a short period of time was shocking. And it's like a lot of life, until you've become, until you've lived a a certain part of life, you can't gain that objectivity. You don't really know who you are, what you feel, or what you think. 
by entering my mid-40s and returning to many of these places in my childhood, I was shocked by how quickly the changes had happened. And then in the more recent time, returning to places and through the world of digital technology, it's like this sort of uh, wildfire, a digital wildfire around the planet, which is going to make us all become homogenous, essentially make us all become the same. So if you can imagine, you know, um, you know, you're in the middle of nowhere and somebody has a smartphone, which often they do now, and they see a picture of Miley Cyrus for the sake of argument. The whole world wants to look like her for the sake of argument. I'm, I'm being facetious. Uh, the whole world ended up wanting to look the same. Um, that's what got me into the panic, and that's what started me in the project. This document has to be made. Not only do we have to show it to ourselves, but we have to show it to them as quickly as possible. And that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. I'm trying to return to as many places as possible, film the whole process, share the pictures I've made and the book I've made, and start talking about it. You know, what is this about? Is it some sort of wild, romantic, naive dream of mine or is there something more profound this is how we see we think you're amazing what do you think of yourselves what are your dreams what do you want would you like to stay here and in some cases they've said yes but we don't know how to um and then some people are saying well you know let's emancipate you let's sort of teach you how you can uh, commercialize your existence and and that sounds very harsh oh you know leave the tribes leave them alone don't touch them well that's a load of bollocks because they're going to be touched anyway. The world is shrinking at a million miles an hour. So you have to talk about it. You have to put it on the table. And one way of doing it is by saying, okay, you may become a tourist attraction. Is that bad? You know, you can earn a living by staying in the environment that you cherish. You can earn a living by holding on to aspects of your originality and authenticity because that's what the modern world wants. We've lost that. It may not be the pure experience that we all want to experience and the pure tribe and the pure culture, but it will be far closer to what it still is today than what it could become if we don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. So, Jimmy, of all the remote places you've visited, what was one place that really stood out for you? Um, difficult question. Um, there are two places which stand out for me. Uh, three, in actual fact. Uh, one of them is, is remote. Uh, Siberia does it for me because it's so remote it's so isolated it's so harsh mm-hmm. so manic it, in many ways it's so tragic it, it, it etches uh, uh, memories on your soul uh, mm-hmm. often the, the most painful things in life are the, one, the most profound experiences you know you can go off on a journey you can go off to Namibia with the Himba and it's sunny and the sand and the dunes and the sunrises and sunsets and it's all very beautiful and profound but it doesn't etch on your soul as much as when it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm extremely fond of where I live here in, in Amsterdam. I find for the developed world, Amsterdam is almost a utopia with how we treat each other and how we look at each other and how we let each other be. Um, and then I spend quite a bit of time in Ibiza or Ibiza or however you want to say it, part one of the yeah. Balearic Islands because... I don't go clubbing, I don't pop pills, and whoever wants to do that is more than welcome to do that. But it's the most extraordinary island on the planet because for two months of the year, people from the developed world uh, uh, arrive and express themselves in how they feel and who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And from a visual and anthropological point of view, uh, it's absolutely fascinating, very liberating. And obviously, there's a sort of a bit of a wild club scene, but the rest of the island attracts some of the most eclectic, interesting, fascinating, creative, individual, eccentric people from the planet. 
mm-hmm. and I find that amazing. And what I will be trying to do in the future, I'm going to be doing up. A, I'm going to be setting up a, a, a summer studio there, much the same as Richard Avedon did in the American West. I'll be mm-hmm. trying to make a sort of long-term portrait document of all the extraordinary people around the planet who come to Ibiza to physically and perhaps retribe and find themselves in their sort of creative and cultural expression there. Jimmy, some, a question I was wondering, like of all the tribes and cultures that you visit, did you, did you witness any like spiritual events on your journey that made you question life maybe? Every journey you go on, you question life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do that on a daily basis when I'm here. Um, I avoided, I didn't do what perhaps somebody like Bruce Parry did, the television presenter, when he went to tribes, he dressed up and he became part of it. Mm-hmm. He did that very successfully, and I admire him, and uh, an amazing guy. But it's a very different objective from what I was trying to achieve. He was trying to see what it was like to drink ayahuasca, what it was like mm-hmm. to be hunted or to go hunting. Uh, it's a very different experience. I tried to keep my objectivity. I never took any form of narcotic when I was there, no, no form of drug. I was very careful with my diet. I never wanted to become ill. Um, I was there for too short a period of time to truly have the experiences that one could have mm-hmm. that could be on anthropologically profound. Does that make sense? To, yeah. to have that sort of, uh, a sort of out-of-body, physical, metaphorical, evangelical experience, you need to spend far longer with these people and yeah. far much more time to truly immerse yourself. I didn't do that. I was there long enough to communicate what I was trying to achieve and the pictures that I was trying to make. Uh, but I, so I can't, I can't lie. I can't pretend that something prof- more profound happened to me than did. Yeah. Does that, no, does like that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I, think, I like I, honesty. I, I think if you're, if you're, you know, I, I would love to say, you know, I saw the light one night when I was sitting under a tree and I drank this potion. I did. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But each day uh, that I live there, but also that I live here, it, it's extraordinarily profound, and it's sort of, you know, it's all intenses and purposes and out of body experience, but not yeah. along the levels of perhaps sort of, you know, seeing the light and uh, as you're perhaps wishing to hear. And that, yeah. and when one pretends that has happened in this relative short period of time that I was there, then that's not the case. You need to spend so much more time. For example, this Jared Diamond I was mentioning earlier, you know, he spent, if I'm right in saying, 15 years of his life doing research in Papua New Guinea. He is then somebody you could ask this question to. Only mm-hmm. he can truly give uh, a deeper understanding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, what what was one of the biggest lessons you've learned about yourself? Oh, good question. Um, honesty. Right. Uh, the yeah. more you look in the mirror. And it is, again, about judgment and how you perceive yourself and about others. The more honest you become to your abilities and capabilities, the happier you become. But it's a contradiction because then you become vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And But strangely enough, through that vulnerability, you meet some of the most amazing people in the world, both here and there. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and opening yourself up to experiences and relationships and happenings and not having a preconceived idea from the result that you expect to achieve thereof. Mm-hmm. So the other night, for example, somebody 
via, via. Okay, here's a very nice story. Uh, a few months ago in the summer last year, uh, and this is what it's about for me. And this, if you want to talk to a story about what I learn and what I feel, what I experience and true wealth, this is a story which encapsulates it for me. A lady emailed me, said, hi, you know, and she's one of the, she said, I'm probably one of the many thousands of people who mail you. I've got to ask you a favor. My uh, husband came to listen to you in a, a lecture the other day and half the way through he had to leave. He's very ill. He's in a wheelchair. He has an autoimmune sickness. He's going to die in two and a half years, two, two and a half to three years. And he couldn't finish. And his one dream is to finish hearing your lecture. Uh, and I was a bit, yeah, but I'm busy. And she said, you know, and, and she said, well, I've got no money and I can't do anything about it. And I said, well, you know what? Let's plan a date in. And as long as you come and collect me and deliver me home, I'll come to your house for the evening. Mm-hmm. I went. I arrived in the house. Uh, the whole neighborhood had turned up. They made a buffet. 50 people sitting in the living room. I gave my talk. The man sitting there in his wheelchair, sort of gurgling away, stuck to a couple of tubes. And thank you very much. And I get in the car and drive home. It was a nice warm evening. Nothing more, nothing less. And I'm sitting in the woman with the mother, the, the wife in the car driving home. It was a two hour drive. And we start having quite a deep conversation. I said, you know, it must be difficult for you. And she said, yeah, very difficult for me. And because uh, he's now so ill that you're going to have to look after him like a baby for the next two and a half years. And but, you know, he's going to die. You don't get anything back for this. And he said, it's strange in the experiences I've had in the last few years. When you go to these tribal cultures, when a human being reaches this stage of illness, they put them to sleep. Mm. Wow. Euthanasia. Uh, because it doesn't serve any purpose. They say goodbye, they make a high point, they have a festival, they have a ceremony, they make a beautiful event, and then they say goodbye, because it serves no purpose. It weakens the community. It's mm. survival of the fittest. And But in our culture, uh, because we have such amazing advancements in medicine, we go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. But yeah. let, you know, is it necessarily worth it? And it's a bit, a bit, quite a sort of, and it's very Dutch and very, very direct with one another. And, and, uh, and she was a bit shocked because it was very confronting, but it was quite a profound conversation. And I said, you know what, uh, this conversation besides, let's do something very special together and we're going to have to do it quickly. And she had three very beautiful uh, late teenage, early 20s daughters. She herself was very well put together. I said, come, let's dress your husband up. Uh, let's all wear white and you can come to Amsterdam and we're gonna, I'm going to make some pictures of you in the park some beautiful, iconic, as I do with the tribes, some pictures of you, to celebrate today, because we know that from tomorrow onwards, it's only going to get worse. And let's all smile and laugh and enjoy the sun and see life for what it is. And they came two weeks later, we made the pictures, we laughed, we cried, and we had a big picnic. Yeah, oh, it's beautiful. uh, And then the the man said, translating to his wife, because I couldn't really understand him, and she said, you know, I know the conversation you had with my wife the other day in the car, and I've made a decision with my wife. It's now over. And I'm going to take this day. This is my, not technically my last, but one of my last days. And it doesn't get more beautiful today because there are strangers meeting. You've given us something. You've given us your passion. You've given us your, your empathy. You're, you've made us beautiful. You've made us laugh. You've shown us the beauty of each other. And I don't want anything less than today. And then two weeks later, he performed euthanasia. They invited me to the funeral. I turned up at the funeral and a couple of hundred people in the funeral. And the whole funeral was set up with beamers of the pictures we'd made that day in the park. And it was one of the most beautiful human experiences I'd ever experienced. But it wasn't in Chukotka. It wasn't in Siberia. It wasn't in Papua New Guinea. It was here in Amsterdam. 
because this is about pure human connection. So by having these raw experiences of the tribes that I have, I am also bringing it back here and sharing it with what I've experienced with other people who are strangers and and those experiences are wildly beautiful and profound and it doesn't get richer. It doesn't get richer when strangers meet and share these wild, it's about life and death, uh, human experiences, emotions, but in the most beautiful way imaginable. And I'm vaguely in touch with her. And she said goodbye to him. The whole family said goodbye to him. He was set free. He was released. He didn't die in shame, dribbling and shitting everywhere. He died as best as possible in, 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 in a position of uh, respect. Um, and they said goodbye. And then they moved on. Oh, yeah. That was incredible. And this is matter of fact for these tribes. This is second nature. They don't think twice about this. Here in our culture, we're so far removed from it. We think we can live forever, but we cause so many problems. Um, yeah. Go back to basics. Go back to what you feel. Go back to what is practical. Mm. Go back to what you think. You know, it, it doesn't serve any purpose, providing we communicate everything, to carry on living for another two and a half years. You will only be, I mean, this is a, this is a very harsh and melodramatic story, but this is what I mean about that human contact, those wild, this is about experiences and ultimate wealth, ultimate wealth. Mm. It's about the beauty of human contact, really, isn't and it? And life and death in all its rawest forms. Mm. And, Jimmy, and, not, and, and by feeling it, and you know, if you feel these experiences on the ice in the tundra with it in Siberia at minus 40 degrees centigrade, you know what it is to translate it and bring it back uh, uh, here. And then you have these wild experiences. Mm-hmm. Wow. Jimmy, I was curious, like, um, if you could change how the world and the human race was evolving, <laughs> what would you do? Oh, yeah, good question. Nobody's ever asked me that before. Um, good question. I have to think. What would I change? I I, do, I don't know whether I have an answer for that. Good good question. You know, you know, being very melodramatic and being very uh, you know, everybody take your clothes off. Um, by doing that, you you go back to basics. Yeah. Uh, it's not overly practical because it's a bit cold in some parts. But if you take your clothes off, you lose your disguise. Uh, you take off all the layers and you go back to the very, very basics. You go back to feeling your body. You go back to being seen uh, and you go back to being human beings. Um, pure, honest. pure and honest. That's not possible. And that's a very facetious. Uh, but that was the first thing that came to mind. And if you put that in context with what happened to me, I lost my I became uh, I lost my visual identity as a child. I lost all form of aesthetic uh, appearance on my face. I wasn't burned or anything. I didn't lose my face, but I felt naked. Truly, truly naked. All the shadows, all the formal structure had gone. Uh, but that nakedness brought me back in touch with myself. Yeah. Truly, it's taken a long time, and it's still evolving. And strangely enough, has brought me in touch with other phenomenally beautiful people and experiences. So maybe that's what it is. We all have to um, you know, t- take off our disguises. And then we will wow. see each other for who we really are and what we really want. That was beautiful. I know that's beautiful. not practical, uh, but uh, it's a bit sort of melodramatic, but uh, yeah, and a bit cold in certain parts of the world. But, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy, I think this last question I'm going to ask you is like a perfect way to end, end the podcast, and I really yeah. feel it will really allow you to put across a big message. And I was just wondering, so of all the photographs that you've taken, 
what is maybe the most important message that you would love to leave or put across to people from your photos? Um, the, of all the photographs I've taken, okay, is there are two aspects to that, uh, two answers. One is, mm-hmm. many people come to me and say, oh, you know, I'd love to do what you do for a living. I'd love to become a photographer and travel around the world. Which camera should I buy? It has nothing to do with the camera. It has to do with who are you, what do you feel, and what do you want to communicate. Mm-hmm. Only then will what you make become profound. And whether it's photography or art or music or whatever, uh, you will know truly what you're trying to communicate and share. That's one aspect. The second aspect is a lady said to me the other day, she said, you know, I really love your book. And I said, oh, thank you very much. And I'm very flattered. And she said, no, it really touched me. And she said, you know, but the odd thing is, I'm not interested in photography. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in tribes. In actual fact, they scare me. And I couldn't give a damn about traveling. I love just sitting at home on my couch. But this book touched me. And there's not one night that goes by that I don't turn. I don't understand, she says. Why does it every picture that turns over touches me? And I said, well, maybe... Because every single person in that book was worshipped by me before I took their picture. Every single person in that book, I spent hours on my knees looking up to them. Every single person in that book, I said, you're special. And every single person in that book had to keep their eyes open for longer than five seconds to stare into this old camera to make sure they weren't blurred. And that's what is being projected out of it. It's human being, one human being making contact with other human beings. So I'm a sort of a, 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 a visual messenger in that, in that story. Wow. To me, Jimmy, the picture's like certainly just... photography, and it's not about amazing lenses and amazing lights. It's about the soul, my eccentric soul, and my desperation to share my story and my message, uh, being immersed in those images, and then uh, what perhaps, hopefully, is coming out of them. Yeah. Jimmy, to me, the picture's certainly just a catalyst, in my opinion. And I think the bigger picture is seeing the change that can come from this. And I think it can really spark in people's minds. And I think it's people like yourself who's really just a conscious warrior, in my opinion, and really does value the planet of the humans. Yeah, existence. I mean, one, one of the assets we're trying to do, we're starting to try and set up a foundation, like a sort of a digital fireplace, where I want to basically say to everybody who's sort of listening and watching and wanting to participate, you know, we're all photographers, we're all filmmakers, I'm no more or less. Get out there. Start yeah, like answering that. your own questions and start sharing your images and your story on this sort of this, this sort of online uh, forum where we can all learn. What did you feel? Where were your finger stuck? What did you see? What did you share? Not by saying it. Don't touch them. Don't go there. I'm the only one to make the pictures. We also be doing that curiosity that I had as a kid and still have today as an adult. We all have it in us and go go out there. Have your experiences. Make your pictures. Make your films. Make your sound recordings. Bring them back. Share them online. And that we can all learn from them and be inspired by them. Oh, Jimmy. So on that note, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Um, you can find me online. Just sort of uh, Google Jimmy Nelson or before they uh, on Facebook the same. Uh, I'm starting next month returning to all the tribes I've been to, going to new tribes. And we're starting to make a film uh, so it's, yeah, it, it's all there. It's all there to be followed, and and I'm very enthusiastic to have uh, participation, uh, positive and negative. I learn an enormous amount from people telling me what they think I'm not doing right, or uh, because only then can we all learn together.
Yeah, Jimmy, I'd just like to say thank you for being an incredible guest, and we're just so glad that we could share your amazing masterpiece of capturing the spirit of the last Marina native people still in touch with their ancient traditions, because it's just truly a masterpiece born in our world, in my opinion, captured by a master. And I believe that we're all a tribe, and I encourage people just to travel beyond ordinary. Uh, You're very kind. Thank you ever so much for your very good questions and for listening and your compliments. No problem. Oh, Jimmy, thank you for your time. Thank you so much for your time, Jimmy. Thanks, guys, for taking time out of your day to boost your consciousness. But, guys, we really need your help. If you're loving the podcast, please pop over and leave us a review and tell us what you think. And also, don't forget to head over to our website at ascendbodymind.com and check out our amazing gallery of other great episodes. Thank you and have a great day. Join us next week for the next episode. Peace.